Matthew 22, verse number 1. And Jesus answered and spake again, spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, probably more respectable, higher up the chain, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remainder took his servants and entreated them spitefully, even to slay them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he saith to the servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in thither not having a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We ask Heavenly Father that you would minister your word to our hearts today. May we grasp those things from this parable which we need to see. May we ignore those things which just complicate the message of the gospel. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't believe I've ever preached from this text before. I am approaching this scripture with a bit of trepidation. That is, a little bit of concern. As always, I want to get it right. I want to give you the truth. But sometimes I don't have as much confidence in doing that as I have at other times. There are two reasons for this concern this morning. The first is this is a parable. And parables present certain challenges all on their own. And I will get to those challenges or some of those challenges in this particular case here in just a minute. And then the subject of this particular parable is the kingdom of God. After 50 years of Bible study, I have at least two books in my library and under my belt, you might say, on the subject of the kingdom of God. But I'm still not bold in my definition of that kingdom when I talk to you. And I will come back to that again here in just a minute. Let's start a little differently. With a fancy word I heard in Bible school half a century ago, hermeneutics, hermeneutics, that 
is a word that refers to the branch of knowledge which deals with the interpretation of texts. So we apply it to the Bible. We're talking about how do we read the Word of God. It is the science, if I can put it that way, it is the science of studying in order to explain what the text is saying. Hermeneutics is not about what the Bible says. It is about how we determine what the Bible says. And there is a bit of difference right there. It provides the rules that we are to follow in our study. In my opinion, and this is not perfect, of course, in my opinion, the very first rule of biblical hermeneutics is the Bible says what it says. It says it. We should not look for allegorical meanings, mystical, exoteric, hidden messages that we think are there in the Word of God. That's not the way we read it. We read it to see what it says, and what the Lord says yeah. hits us in the face, and we go from there. It should be taken literally, yeah. unless the context suggests it can't be done that way. And then we have authority from the Bible itself. Take, for example, the word serpent, which we used in our lesson last Wednesday. At God's command, when Moses threw that big old shepherd's staff on the ground, it became a snake. It did not become a demon. It did not become the devil that uh, uh, beguiled Eve. It did not become an image of Pharaoh who worshiped snakes like this. He threw that, 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 that uh, uh, rod down and it became a serpent, a real, live serpent. Sometimes the Bible does speak in allegories. It does speak in parables and illustrations. It's not very often, but usually the text tells us, and Jesus shared with them this parable. There it is. We have it right here. Another important rule of hermeneutics is never to use a parable as the foundation of an important doctrine. Parables are illustrations only. And they illustrate things which are taught elsewhere more clearly in the word of God. And this is why the Lord Jesus said here, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. It is similar to this situation, a king. Parables are often rather indistinct. So they leave the door open for a variety of interpretations and preachers take those interpretations hundreds of different ways if they're not careful. So we use parables to illustrate rather than to pontificate. The three-horned beast in, in Daniel chapter 7 is not the United States of America because America has three branches of government. I didn't make that up. That was brought to me by Darren yesterday. Who heard that? Yeah. No, it's a three-horned beast, and I don't know for sure what it means. But I, I'm not going to tell you that it's the United States of America. Uh, I'll let somebody else do that. 
Now, getting back to my initial statement, my problem with the kingdom of heaven is that nearly everything we are told about that kingdom comes to us through Jesus' parables. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. These are all quotes. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. The, it, only if we assume that the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God, then do we get some more direct statements. There are direct statements about the kingdom of God, but never with those ter that term kingdom of heaven. I say all of that to point out that I'm not going to make a detailed application of everything that is contained in this parable. I'll leave that to others. But I am going to proceed with the premise that the kingdom of heaven refers to the rule of the God of heaven over the things of earth. With a hundred scriptures behind me, I will tell you that Jehovah is the sovereign king of this world. And he sent his son into this world for several reasons. The first and foremost is to call sinners to salvation in Christ. Christ came to die for the redemption of specific individuals. God wants all the people of this globe to love and serve him through his son. And to this end... He sows his seed in the field. To this end, he casts this net out into the sea to gather these fish. To this end, he sends forth his servants with invitations to come to his son's wedding. I believe that all of these things refer to the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people who joyfully and properly come to the wedding are blessed citizens of the kingdom of God. But at the same time, those who refuse to come, refuse to trust, refuse to respond to the king, they are also residents in this same kingdom. They're not the blessed citizens thereof, but they are residents in this kingdom. And the king of that kingdom has every right, as king, to send forth his armies to burn up the rebellious cities within his kingdom. They're his. He has the right to judge those who will not come to the wedding. Or they come to the wedding in their own righteousness, refusing to wear the proper wedding garment, which he willingly gives. The laws of the kingdom have been laid down for all of the residents to read and to study, but very few actually do. So the king is fully justified to say to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away, cast him into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why do I bring all of this to your attention? 
because you are described somewhere in this parable. This is about us. It's about you and me in the light of God, the King, and His Son, the Lord Jesus. You have been invited. And many of you have accepted this invitation and come to the feast and enjoyed the fellowship with the Son of God. But others have rejected the invitation and will ultimately come to regret their decision. Your eternity, your eternity is linked to how you respond to the invitation which the Holy Spirit is extending to you to join in that great relationship with God the Son. Along with this primary lesson, there are at least a dozen dozen other sermons contained in these 14 verses. Perhaps someday someone will publish 12 sermons by C.H. Spurgeon on the kingdom of heaven. To go along with the many other little books that I have of the 12 sermons of C.H. Spurgeon on this theme or that theme, the other. But I can assure you that I will never be publishing a book on this subject. Uh, I'm just not confident. (laughs) I won't be publishing my own messages on the subject or... Uh, those of anyone else. And yet, this morning, I would like to focus and apply one small statement from verse number five. The invitation had been given, but they made light of it. What does that mean? But they made light of it. How does that relate to us? In today's vernacular, To make light of something might be to diss it. I'm not sure if that's correct because I'm not all that familiar with today's vernacular. But that's definitely not what the Greek word meant back in Jesus' day. Some of these people might have laughed at the invitation. Oh, you expect me to go to the palace to be a part of that great feast? (laughs) Some of these people might have ridiculed those who delivered it. But that is not what the Bible means in these words. When the Bible says they made light of it, that comes from a singular, a single Greek word that's found in only four other verses in the Bible. In Hebrews 8-9, the Lord said, And I regarded him not. It's the same Greek word. When the people of Israel refused the Lord's invitation and continued not in his covenant, I regarded them not, said the Lord. He turned away from them, ignored them, walked away, certainly did not save them, did not redeem them, He turned from them in the same way that they turned from him and the covenant that he had established. In the other three scriptures, the word to make light of is translated in some form of to neglect. 
as in 1 Timothy 4.14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Don't make light of that gift, ignoring what the Lord has given to you to serve him and to glorify him. And in 2 Peter 1.12, the apostle uses the word negatively, vowing to his friends, wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. I will not make light of this before you. The final use of this word is so closely connected to our initial scripture that I'd like you to turn to read it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews, the second chapter. Verse number 1. Therefore we ought, or if I may change it slightly, you ought to give more earnest heed to those things which you have heard, lest at any time you let them slip away. Hmm. How many times have you heard the gospel during your life? How many times have you heard other important scriptures and uh, you didn't pay much attention? And they just kind of slip away, gone. How often has the Holy Spirit convicted you of your need of the Savior? Paul says, give heed to what you have heard. Don't let God's voice slip away from your heart, slip away from your mind. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, if the word spoken by angels was permanent, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, a proper punishment, if every disobedience to the commands given to us by angels was judged by the God who sent those angels, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. How shall we hope to escape the wrath of the king when we ignore the invitation that he's given to us? When we make light of it, when we neglect it. When we walk away, how can we escape when we make light of God's offer and turn to other things? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which has been so faithfully shared and so willingly rejected by us? How shall we escape? The words to make light of simply mean to ignore. To neglect. There doesn't have to be any disrespect in it. There doesn't have to be any ridicule or anger or retaliation or persecution against the servants that have given you the invitation. All it means is you walked away. 
neglected it. Made light of it. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. I asked Brother Palmer to read from Luke 14, because we have a related parable there. To borrow from that, they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, I must go and see it. I, I, I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. In the case of this second parable, all of these excuses were offered politely, without any animosity. I pray thee, I pray thee, please have me excused. My wife wouldn't like it if I came to your feast. Yes, in Matthew 22, others took the king's servants and abused them, persecuting them and killing them. But I'm not talking about them at this point. I'm talking about those who walked away, <coughs> made light of it. Why did they do that? Why did they behave in this fashion? Of course, to answer that question, I have to turn to my imagination because the Lord Jesus here doesn't tell us. But we don't have to think very hard to come up with some reasonable excuses for their behavior. If they only knew what it was they were turning down, if they only understood what they were neglecting, they would come quickly change their minds and run to the palace and partake of this great feast. They were walking away from an eternal feast, returning under the hard scrabble farm that may not raise another carrot or cucumber uh, any day in the future. They were walking away to a business which this economy could crush in the next uh, fiscal downturn. If in this life only we have hope, we shall live and die miserably. Yep. If this is it, if this is all there is, if they only knew from what they were turning, if they only understood to what they were returning, they wouldn't do this. If people knew what a loving, gracious, merciful God Jehovah is, the whole world would come running to him. There are many who in their limited knowledge, their human wisdom, think they know the Lord. So they see children dying with leukemia and childhood cancer, and they blame God. They see homeless people freezing to death under a bridge, and they curse God for the weather. They hear about people who in the name of religion are slaughtering other people for their religion. If they only knew the rest of the story, if they only understood that Jehovah is always 
just. Always righteous in what he does, even in those negative things. His judgment against those wicked cities lies on the people of those wicked cities. They have refused the king. If they knew to what lengths he has gone to prepare this feast, if they knew that there was a wedding garment prepared for them, that they don't have to come in their own clothing, the righteousness and justice of God are as much a part of of, of salvation as it is in the judgment of those that reject that salvation. It's the same God and the same basic rules, pro and con. Don't get angry with God for the negative stuff when you reject the positive stuff. People's lack of understanding is one reason for their disrespectful neglect. Another is their lack of faith. The gospel invitation is an honest offer. It's worthy of all acceptation and trust. When the king says, come, it's without respect to educational level or strength of intellect. If they had the ability to understand the word come, they should have turn to him. It didn't matter if they were publicans or, or Pharisees, Republicans or Democrats, men or women. It didn't matter if they were children or they're old men. It didn't matter if they were harlots or, or patriots. The invocation was pretty general. Come to the feast. Come enjoy my meal. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. They didn't even have to be hungry. Wouldn't hurt. But uh, come. Why did they make light of the king's invitation? Wasn't it because they thought of themselves more highly than they should have? Wasn't there, as there almost always is, wasn't there an element of pride? There were no words of unworthiness on their part. No one said that the king must have made a mistake. <clears throat> Excuse me. No one said, he made a mistake when he invited me. I'm unworthy. I have no statements like that here. No one said, I don't have a wedding garment. It was just the opposite. The implication was their farm or their business was more important than the wedding of the son of the king. In the second parable, a man had a trophy wife. She was more important than the king of kings. I almost said, how ludicrous, but maybe that's too strong a word. How, how sad. Come to the wedding and bring your wife with you. What's wrong with that? When the first two invitations were rejected, the king broadened his appeal. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you find, bring to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. The Lord has told his servants, Go ye into all the world 
Preach the gospel to every creature, bad and good. Repentance and remission of sin should be preached in the Son's name among all nations indiscriminately. Get that word, that invitation out there. I trust that you've already noticed the words. So the servants gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. It didn't make any difference to the king. Again, the gracious king has not confined his invitations to people who are worthy because there was no one worthy of this wedding feast. None. I don't know if there's much meaning in the arrangement, but I'm pleased the way it says the bad before the good. The bad were invited as well as the good. The king knows that there is none good. There is none that seeketh after God. To the king, they were just hungry guests who needed to be fed, who had a need. What came as a result of these people's neglect? Letting the parable speak for itself, I think I see three things. When the king heard that some of those people had murdered his servants, he felt, they felt his fiery wrath. He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. There's so many places we could go from here. I'll just refer to Luke 16 about the man who died and was buried. And immediately he lift up his eyes being in torments. Whether justified or not, I see a parallel between the judgments of this Hebrew, of uh, Matthew 22 and the judgments of the man in Luke 16 or the final judgment of all unbelievers. He died and was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torment. And then there was that wedding crasher who tried to invade the banquet without the righteous robe of the invited guest. It appears he was proud enough in his self-righteousness and his double-vented suit to walk into the palace. I'm fit to sit in one of the upper seats at the table. He didn't RSVP. He didn't pick up the wedding garment which the king had tailored for all of the guests. Like the Pharisee praying in the temple or like Cain at his family's altar, he expected to be well received without consideration of the wedding rules. Just walk right in. Sit down. Many more sermons could be preached about these people. Many more should be in shall be preached about these people. But then there was that larger majority that simply made light of the invitation and went about their business without any consideration for the king or his son. We aren't told in this parable what happened to those people. Except for the fact they missed the Lord's gracious blessing, that's for sure. But right or wrong, to finish the story, I could turn to Revelation 20 and look for an application. 
On the last day, at the final judgment, the dead, small and great, shall stand before God. All of the dead, these who made light and walked away, will stand before God. The sea will give up the dead which are in them. Death and hell shall give up the dead which are in them. And they shall be judged. The books will be opened. In particular, in particular there will be the guest registry for the wedding of the king's son. And whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It doesn't take great hatred against the king or his son to find oneself in this particular judgment. Mm. The dead are all there. Those who are in the registry are spared. Those who are not, I revert to a word in conclusion that I've used uh, nearly every week for the last month. The king's invitation was simply, come, come, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. It's so simple. Come. Perhaps you've heard the king's offer before. Perhaps this is the first time. Perhaps many times you have heard this word come. Will you again make light of it and walk away? It's just not important enough for you. You might uh, die at sea in pursuit of your merchandise. Or you may die under the tractor that's tipped over while you are plowing your field once again. The sea and the death, the sea and death gave up the dead which were in them to stand before the Lord. Is your name engraved in the guest registry at the wedding? Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? You can check. Repent before God. Yes. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Word of God tells me, there's your name. The Holy Spirit is saying this morning, Behold, all things are ready. Come to the feast. Come to the feast. Will you say, yes, Lord Jesus, here I come. Yes, I come. Will you say, I come. Please stand. I'll conclude right there.